Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. President Donald Trump has lost two crucial battles in his efforts to keep his financial records private. It's a skirmish that could be heading for the Supreme Court, and it seems the ruling there would also be unlikely to go his way. And has a piece of music ever raised the hair on your neck, given you a chill, made you outright euphoric? a new book tackles the complicated question of why people like the music they do. First up, though. Today, Theresa May announced her resignation as Britain's Prime Minister after failing three times to push her Brexit deal through Parliament. Mrs. May spent two years negotiating an agreement with the European Union about the terms of Britain's departure, only to have members of Parliament turn it down time and time again. It is and will always remain a matter of deep regret to me that I have not been able to deliver Brexit. It will be for my successor to seek a way forward that honours the result of the referendum. To succeed, he or she will have to find consensus in Parliament where I have not. Such a consensus can only be reached if those on all sides of the debate are willing to compromise. She was forced to extend Britain's departure from the EU for an additional seven months. Her fourth attempt to forge a deal, the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, alienated her supporters by offering the prospect of another referendum. It was this that finally cost her leadership of the Conservative Party and the country. Whatever our background, the colour of our skin or who we love, we stand together. And together, we have a great future. Our politics may be under strain, but there is so much that is good about this country. So much to be proud of. So much to be optimistic about. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. We've just watched Theresa May, the Prime Minister, give a very emotional resignation speech on the steps outside Downing Street. Tom Wainwright is our Britain editor. There's been speculation all week, not about if she will step down, but when she will step down. And she's now given us the date. It's the 7th of June. 
It was a very dramatic moment, and Theresa May was keen to get in some of the mentions of the things that, as Prime Minister, she has tried to highlight. She talked about her quest to solve what she describes as the burning injustices in the country. She highlighted the fact that she has been Britain's uh, only the second female Prime Minister, but not the last, she said. Uh, and at the end, really, it became too much for her, and her voice cracked as she finished the speech, and she turned away, really, on the verge of tears. It was a, a very dramatic moment. Why has she chosen this particular moment, though? What What is it that's sort of pushed her over the edge? Well, there's been speculation all week about when she will step down. Uh, she's been under pressure for months, having tried and failed to get her Brexit deal through Parliament. She's had three attempts now. All of them have been crushed. And her plan was to try a fourth and final time to get it through. But this week, she came up with what she described as a, a bold new offer uh, to try and win the votes of Labour MPs to back the deal. But it backfired spectacularly when she mentioned that there could be a second referendum involved and her Conservative Party erupted on the very mention of this. It became clear that there was no chance of getting the deal through. And so the question turned simply to the matter of when she was going to quit. So what happens now? What happens now is we have to choose her successor, and you might expect that the public would have some say in who runs the government, but that's not the way that it works in Britain's parliamentary system. It won't be the 66 million British people who choose, it will be the 120,000 paid-up members of the Conservative Party who choose. And they aren't much like the, the rest of the country. They're quite a bit older than average. They're heavily male-dominated. And in their politics, they're quite well to the right, even of the typical Conservative Party voter. And so they're likely to choose somebody who is perhaps more right-wing and has a, a sort of firmer line on Brexit than the average voter might themselves want. So who's that going to be? Well, the runaway favourite at the moment is Boris Johnson, the former Foreign Secretary. He isn't wildly popular with Conservative MPs, who are the ones who draw up the short list of two from which the members then choose. But MPs see him as an election winner. And right now, that's something that's very much on the Conservative Party's mind. We had the European elections yesterday in Britain. We'll get the results on Monday. The Tories are expecting an absolute drubbing in those. So that some polls suggest they could go down to single digits. And Tory MPs see Boris Johnson as somebody who might be able to tempt people back to the Tory party away from the Brexit party, which is on a winning streak at the moment. So they seem likely to put him on the shortlist. And if they do, it seems overwhelmingly likely that those Tory party members will pick him over whoever else is on that shortlist. He's very popular with them. And how will he handle the, the Brexit mess that he's, in, he's inheriting? Well, he said in his usual bombastic style that he's just going to jolly well go back to Brussels and get us a better deal. And the EU doesn't seem all that persuaded by this. They've said very clearly that the deal is done and it's now up to Britain to take it or leave it. What we don't know is what Boris Johnson will do when the EU says no. That's the big question of the summer and the big question facing Britain. And what about uh, the, the the questions that Mrs May is left with? What, what what comment would you make on the sort of this ignominious end to her, her leadership? Well, it's a tragedy for her because really it, she's been desperate for a legacy of some sort and there's not much to see there. Her one big uh, quest in, in her time in office was to try to get this Brexit deal through and she's failed to do that. And Brexit has so dominated her time in office that she hasn't really had time to do much else either. During her speech, she talked about the burning injustices that she tried to fix. She talked about the inquiry into the Grenfell fire disaster that she had launched. But these are fairly slim pickings for almost three years in office. Um, really, there's not much there for her to hang on to. And this isn't the kind of end to her government that she had hoped for. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
For a deep dive on the historical roots of Brexit, have a listen later today to our interview show, The Economist Asks. My colleague Anne McElvoy talks to Jacob Rees-Mogg, a leading Brexiteer and backer of Boris Johnson. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash Bonds. It's been a troubling few days for President Donald Trump. His fight to avoid handing over his financial records has suffered a significant setback, with two courts ruling against him. Meanwhile, an ongoing spat with Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, has escalated. I pray for the President of the United States. I wish that his family or his administration or his staff would have an intervention for the good of the country. Crazy Nancy. I tell you what, I've been watching her, and I have, I have been watching her for a long period of time. She's not the same person. She's lost it, and she is a mess. But it's the court battles, rather than the exchange of insults, that should concern him more. Donald Trump has had a really bad week. John Fasman is our Washington correspondent. On Monday, a federal judge in Washington, D.C., ruled that he can't block the House Oversight Committee's subpoena of Mazars, an accounting firm that he used. And then two days later, a different federal judge in New York refused the Trump Organization's request to quash subpoenas that the House Financial Services and Intelligence Committees issued to Deutsche Bank and Capital One. Now, Deutsche has lent Mr. Trump money for years, and he has several accounts with Capital One. That same day, legislators in New York approved a bill that would let state tax officials in Mr. Trump's home state release his returns to Congress. And New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, has said that he will sign it. I mean, we, we've heard about these kinds of uh, paperwork skirmishes for absolutely months. Why, why is this set of decisions significant? Well, these rulings are significant for two reasons. First, because it's the next step in a process. Both George W. Bush and Barack Obama fought congressional subpoenas. Now, they didn't fight them the way Donald Trump has by announcing they were going to fight them all and arguing, in essence, that congressional oversight is inherently illegitimate when carried out by the opposition party. But they fought them all the same. And they both lost in federal court, just as Donald Trump has. And then they complied with the court's rulings. So now it's up to Mr. Trump to do the same thing. The other reason these rulings matter is that the judge's decisions were fundamentally simple and unambiguous. Judge Ramos, who ruled in the Deutsche Bank case, said that the case did not raise any serious questions. In other words, this is a lawfully issued subpoena and the president has to comply. Now, I expect he'll appeal both rulings, but it's difficult to see grounds for reversal in either case. So how likely is it then that in the long run, even if this is fought, that we'll we'll see these financial records? I'd like to say that it's a given that at least Congress will see some financial records soon. Donald Trump may have the will and political capital to resist congressional subpoenas, but Mazars and Deutsche Bank and Capital One don't, and they will almost certainly comply. And Mr. Trump will probably contest New York's law authorizing the release of his tax returns. But Democrats are also trying to get them through the House Ways and Means Committee. And I imagine if that goes to a federal district court, that the court would ultimately side with them there, too. The reasoning is basically the same. So somehow, Congress will see at least some of what they want to see fairly soon, and they may ultimately see everything. But what do you mean by everything? What, what kinds of information do you expect will be revealed in these records? 
Um, I am hesitant to speculate, but there have been rumors for years that Mr. Trump is perhaps not worth as much as he claims he's worth. Now, Michael Cohen in congressional testimony said that Donald Trump inflated and deflated his reported wealth, depending on what served him best at the time. The New York Times reported on Sunday that money laundering specialists at Deutsche Bank recommended that several transactions involving entities controlled by Mr. Trump or his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, be reported to a federal financial crimes watchdog. So, you know, I suspect we could see any number of things. You can imagine any number of things we could see. Or, you know, we could also see that he's a rich guy with a complicated but fundamentally legal financial history. I mean, though, if that is true, it's unclear why he would devote so much energy and expend so much political capital on keeping his record secret. So what if there is uh, nefarious stuff, though, in the records uh, with all the talk that's been going on on the Hill about impeachment um, on what you'd call a political front? Do you, do you think there is uh, a chance that the information revealed in these documents could could sort of bolster a push for impeachment more or less on financial grounds as well? Well, Nancy Pelosi and House Democratic leadership have been pretty clear that they do not want a partisan impeachment process. And what they fear will happen for good reason is that the House – which is controlled by Democrats, will vote articles of impeachment against the president, but the Republican-dominated Senate will vote against removal. In essence, they'll acquit him. And Democrats worry that this will leave him in a stronger position heading into 2020. Now, I'm not sure that's entirely true. You know, if the impeachment process is preceded by a long set of hearings that essentially dramatize the allegations contained in the Mueller report. But that's where House Democrats are today. They view talk of impeachment as essentially a distraction from the more important process of oversight. I don't think we should impeach a president for political reasons, and I don't think we should not impeach a president for political reasons. But you have to be ironclad in terms of your facts and to see where that takes us. You know, at the same time, a growing number of progressive Democrats have begun pushing harder for impeachment and arguing that it would streamline multiple separate avenues of inquiry and would dramatize the high stakes of those inquiries. In the middle of those groups, in the middle between the leadership, which wants to go slowly and deliberately, and the more aggressive progressives, are the dozens of Democrats from moderate districts who gave the House its Democratic majority. Now, I suspect many of them would say privately, as I suspect House leadership members would too, that Donald Trump has clearly done things that are impeachable. But those candidates won because they ran kitchen table campaigns, and they're probably pretty reluctant to dive into what is, for now, an overwhelmingly partisan battle. Okay, and then what happens next? Well, Mr. Trump will no doubt appeal the two recent rulings, and whatever happens at the appellate level, I expect the loser will appeal to the Supreme Court. Mr. Trump may feel he has a pretty strong hand there. The court leans to the right, and he appointed the two most recent justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. But if it does go that high, I really think it's likelier than not that he'll be disappointed. You know, justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh may, on the whole, lean to the right, but they are also distinguished jurists and first-rate legal minds. And I think the rulings from Judges Meta and Ramos this week made it pretty clear that Mr. Trump's argument really doesn't have much legal merit. And so in that sense, I'm inclined to ask again, and I feel like I've asked this a couple of times before, but do you think we're headed for a constitutional crisis? Well, some people like Jerry Nadler, who heads the House Judiciary Committee, said we were in a constitutional crisis when the president didn't immediately accede to a subpoena. That's not really true. Presidents have fought subpoenas before. They'll fight them again. But if the Trump administration disregards a federal court ruling, then that really is a different kettle of fish. That really is a constitutional crisis. Now, we aren't there yet, but it isn't too hard to imagine Mr. Trump thumbing his nose at a ruling he doesn't like, even if it comes from a Supreme Court that he helped shape. John, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure.
Without music, life would be a mistake. So said failed composer, but famed philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. Musical taste can be a mystery. Why do some music lovers adore Wagner, for example, but shun viciously ear-splitting metal? The one genre I've really been unable to get on with, I guess, has been funk. But there's a surprising amount of science behind why we like the music that we like. Stephen Phillips writes for our books and arts section. He's reviewed a new book by musicologist Nolan Gasser that tries to answer the question of why we like the music we do. There's that adage that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. So why you like it is an attempt at demystification, at explaining how music produces the uncanny sensations that we recognize as listeners. So those might be the power to move us to tears, to evoke awe, to induce involuntary toe-tapping. And perhaps most mysteriously of all, the odd proclivity of sad songs to uplift us. Hello, my name is Nolan Gasser, and I'm the author of Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. I'm a pianist, composer, and musicologist. There's no doubt that we have always been musical, even if we spoke before we sang, although some think that we sang before we spoke or some combination. Our ability to sort of manipulate sound in a musical way certainly goes back to our earliest days. Music has the power to bond us something that we all experience when we're at a football game and we, you know, we all hear the same music or at a concert and we all sing together. Our ability to use sound creatively just goes back, I think, to our origins of being musical, even to the point that I think that our ability to be creative with musically may have been one of those things that helped us to eventually, about 70,000 years ago, successfully get out of our small little corner of sub-Saharan Africa and, and populate the entire globe. Music is really essential to who we are as humans. So, Stephen, what is it that does define our taste in music, according to Mr. Gasser, and, and why should we take his word for it? He certainly has the musical chops he played with the Steve Miller Band as a pianist. He's a composer in his own right. And he also has the professional experience. So he uh, worked at U.S. music streaming pioneer Pandora. And here he presided over what I think was the original music recommendation algorithm that basically suggested new music to listeners based strictly on the musical characteristics of their favorite tracks. So the idea is to, to sift out the confounding considerations like fashion. And so the book really is about what shapes our music tastes collectively and individually. All music plays in the same evolutionary sandbox. So when we talk about feeling the groove of a piece of music, we really can. Humans possess the unique ability, Gasser writes, to lock into a beat. We're all suckers for repetition. This is the stock in trade across all genres. Electronica in particular is unimaginable without repetition. Repetition allows us not merely to listen to the music, but to listen along with it, because we kind of know what's coming next. So this explains in turn how surprise governs our musical response. So there's that paradox of negative emotion that's operative when we listen to sad songs. And so think about it, when you listen to a sad song, you experience a sense of emotional uplift, even at times a sense of catharsis, a sense of physical emotional release. And what's going on here? Scholars speculate that sad music spurs secretion of a certain hormone called prolactin, 
This is a consoling hormone that's produced by nursing mothers and, and, and when you feel uh, mental torment. But the payoff is heightened by the fact that you're not actually experiencing a sad event. So it's like you're sitting in the seats watching a tragic play. It's a safely vicarious feeling. You're not actually going through the triggering event itself. So Gasser offers a taxonomy of the different emotions the music elicits and he identifies the peak high or the peak listening state as frisson. And this is characterized by thrills and chills, a kind of all over body sensation. And it's far more common amongst avid music fans, he writes. So, Jason, your producer, William, has uh, prepared three pieces of music for your listening pleasure. And we're going to see if we can evoke the feeling of frisson in you. OK. Aha. Um... It's, it's the thrill of current events. I, I mean, actually, the, the whole body I, feeling I have is that I, I must have some work to do. <laughs> um, no, there, there is no full body ecstasy from this. It makes me feel like a, 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 the, the crossover between polka and country music. I don't, I don't much care for it at all. Much more my speed. I, I, I can. I can tell there's going to be a solo in not too long that's definitely going to give me the chills. So this is actually the Economist jazz band. You're never going to guess what they call the Invisible Hands. Very clever. Yes, I have run across them before. I need to see them again. Stephen, thank you very much for, for taking me on that journey. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Tuesday. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.